Well, again, welcome to Praxis. As a ministry, we've been going through the book of Romans. So I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open them to Romans chapter 3. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 21 to 26, a very theologically dense yet rich passage that I trust will prove to be an encouragement to you. So follow along as I read our portion of scripture tonight, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 21, all the way to 26. This is the word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we come before you from different weeks. Some of us have been having a tough week with maybe it's busyness at work or just hardships and trials that have come along. Lord, we pray that this word would be a, a balm to the aching soul, a refreshment to those that are dry and parched, that they might feast upon your word and see how glorious, how great, how gracious you are, that we can be made right with you. And for those of us who praise you because we are in a, a season, a time of prosperity or blessing, we pray that even this passage would remind us of the goodness of being in right relationship with you, the joys of being reconciled to our Heavenly Father. Oh, Father, that we might be built up all the same. Uh, sharpened and encouraged to follow after Christ. So use your word. Uh, we pray for your help now, Lord, to illumine the minds and to transform our hearts that we would honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther, you might know him, but before he was ever the great reformer, he was a German monk tormented by the nagging question, how does one get right with God? How can a sinner be reconciled with his creator? And this issue hounded him. Luther embarked to find some sort of solution. And if anyone had the answer, it had to be the monastery, a community of devout brothers under religious vows. And so he entered. He entered the abbey. And there, Luther played by all the rules, often going above and beyond. He adopted a rigorous regimen, waking up early while it was still pitch black just to study the scriptures and spend hours in prayer. 
He was scrupulous in examining himself, searching every corner of his heart and confessing his sin for absolution. So diligent and paranoid, often upon exiting the confession room, Luther would rush right back in because he feared he missed something. He feared being struck down for some unconfessed sin. And so he would tell the, the priest, Father, yesterday at lunch, I coveted Brother Philip's potato or something like that. Luther was so nitpicky, so annoying even, that the priest eventually told him, stop it. You know, come back when you actually have something worthy of confessing. But I think this story sheds light on how careful, how pedantic he was. If there was anyone who was religiously meticulous, it was Martin Luther. And yet, despite his strict observances, he couldn't shake a feeling. It's not enough. You see, there's no rest for the wicked. No peace for those who constantly monitor and worry if their good will outweigh their bad. It can all change in a split second. That's the weakness for any works-based system, for any approach that attempts to establish righteousness before God on human strength. It is a fleeting endeavor. And yet, as we have seen, the book of Romans has been addressing this conundrum, this dilemma from a different angle, from an unusual starting point, not by elaborating on all the hoops to jump through in order to attain and establish our righteousness, no, but by pounding us with how unrighteous we actually are. In these opening chapters, the apostle Paul has been relentless. Chapter one, human beings are depraved. We diminish God to love and worship lesser things. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, the glory of God for falling creation. As Calvin said, the human heart is an idle factory. And should we excuse ourselves from such a charge because, well, like Luther, we have it together. We're pious. We're religious. We're better than the rest. Maybe we serve at church. Well, Paul has a rebuke for us as well. Chapter two, any self-righteousness we may have is a sham because there's always some level of inconsistency between what we practice and what we preach. Discrepancy is unavoidable. And if we posture and try to measure up by our own merits, we're eventually exposed for our hypocrisy. I mean, just look at the Jews. They had it all. The covenants, the oracles of God, the sign of circumcision, and yet their outward compliance was merely a shell for their inward emptiness. And like a good lawyer, the Apostle Paul makes his closing arguments in chapter 3. He winds it down. That from the inside out, no one is righteous. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified before God. The case is closed. Now, as difficult as it has been to accept the apostles' clobbering, there's light at the end of this tunnel. Because like an artist, 
Paul has been painting the canvas black so what's front and center can really shine forth. So that what he draws now radiates and then rivets our attention. Finally, after so much darkness, so much unrighteousness, the righteousness of God burst forth. This is the topic Paul is ready to unpack. In fact, the word righteousness or justification occurs five times in our passage tonight. The same root word. You see it if you peer down in your Bibles in verse 21, 22, 24, 25, 26. I don't know what happened to 23, but oh well. You see, we have good news tonight. Sinners can be made right before God. The guilty can be justified before the Holy One. This is the gospel condensed, boiled down into a single word. Righteousness. Righteousness. Paul has introduced this theme at the beginning of his book, Romans 1, 16 to 17, when he declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And after taking a long detour through the valley of our debauchery, Paul now resumes his mountaintop declaration. And tonight he slows us down so that we dig in and mine this essential truth. For our time together, we'll organize our passage under three main headings the righteousness of god through faith by grace and in christ the righteousness of god through faith by grace in christ a very reformed outline tonight now let me preface by saying much of the application from tonight's teaching will come later on in the next verses in next week's passage in verses 27 to 31 And that's not to say that there's no practical implications. I will try to tease some of that out. But the apostle spends the majority of this section teaching on this indispensable doctrine before exhorting us on how it should impact and change our lives. All that to say, come back next week for part two. Now, first, the righteousness of God through faith. The righteousness of God through faith. Look again at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Stop there. Verse 1 pops off with a huge transition. It's signaled by something seemingly small to us. That tiny conjunction, but. This marks a major turning point in this book. Consider where we've been and where we're heading And it makes sense. Thus far, Paul has bullied us into a corner until we've had to admit our defeat. More recently in verses 19 and 20, every mouth is stopped. The whole world culpable before God. It is indisputable. We are unrighteous. And yet the momentum shifts in this tiny adversity. But. You see the contrast there? It is a pivotal moment as Paul now discusses the righteousness of God. 
And the first thing he mentions is that this righteousness of God is apart, is separate from the law. The lowercase law here is shorthand for a works-based righteousness. Any method, strategy, attempt to earn your own salvation. You see, we're so used to performing, we've twisted the purpose of God's law. We've mishandled it by reading it exclusively as an instruction manual, forgetting it's also an indictment. Here's what I mean by that. When we hear, say, for example, the Ten Commandments, we think of instructions. Instructions on how to stack up and succeed rather than a list enumerating all the ways we've messed up. You know, we're told not to lie. And in our naivety, we determine, well, if I don't lie, that means I'm a good person. Then I'll be good with God. But that's our mistake. The proper response is to be confronted and convicted by the harrowing truth. We should realize, oh, shoot, I do lie. Maybe not all the time, maybe not now, but I will. There must be something wrong with me. You see the difference there? It's ever so subtle and yet ever so crucial. When we try to work for righteousness by sheer obedience, in effect, what we do is we take the law and we prop it up as a ladder in order to try to climb our way up to God. But that was never God's intention. No, the law was designed to function like a mirror, showing our flaws, warts and all. The law, the law wasn't supposed to be a ladder to prop up, but more like train tracks to bring us to a proper destination, to the right conclusion that we aren't perfect, that we can't keep God's commands, that we are sinners. And this is a difficult thing for us to accept because we've been hardwired to achieve and fix things on our own, right? For the most part, we're pretty good at it too. Whether it's advancing in our careers, befriending others, or just patching stuff up around the house. And the danger comes when we approach God in the same manner. Well, if I try harder, If I just do better, if I use my brain, then I can make things right with God. But the apostle humbles us right out the gates. The righteousness of God is a righteousness from God. Apart from our best efforts or savvy plans. Apart from works, apart from us. In fact, this has always been the message delivered. Paul, what he does is he points to the Old Testament. Look at the second half of verse 21. It says, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You'll notice that the law here now is capital. The capital law and the prophets is an abbreviation for the entire Old Testament. And the two are symbolic and go hand in hand. The law was Israel's religious system. The prophets were the religious teachers of this system. And together they prepared, they trained the people of God for the righteousness of God. And that alone is indicative, is revealing. By very definition, a precursor is not the end-all be-all. 
it is a stepping stone to something else. Take training wheels. Training wheels, we all know, are for a greater end. The goal is not just so that you pedal with two big wheels and two small wheels for the rest of your life. That would be sad. People would make fun of you, right? No, the goal of training wheels is to guide and prepare you for what's better, biking with only two wheels like a big boy or big girl. But if you stay fixated on your training wheels, you'll miss the point. You will confuse their purpose. And Paul here is putting it plainly. The law and the prophets, they bear witness to something else, not to themselves. No, they point to another. You can think of it like John the Baptist in the New Testament, how he declared, I am not the Christ, but instead he says, make straight the way of the Lord. So the law and the prophets of old function similarly. They were, in a sense, the OG Old Testament John the Baptist, if you will. And to cherish these forerunners over Christ and the righteousness of God is as bizarre and strange as asking for the autograph of the assistant over the celebrity themselves. You might have seen the recent trend in some Instagram or TikTok videos. I don't know if it's a trend. I'm just trying to relate and pass myself off as being young. But uh, I think some of these video reels, what they'll do is uh, there's an artist who's focusing on the last brushstroke or, or placing the last piece of the puzzle. And then the video zooms out so that you can appreciate the whole thing, right? That small piece was really part of a larger picture. And the point is to get you to realize how all these smaller strokes and pieces contribute to this whole entire view. It's a setup. And that's what Paul is doing in verse 21. Our gaze is not to be narrow on keeping particular commands or infatuating with particular prophets. We aren't to just busy ourselves with various religious activity and practices. It's all a setup for a grander, a bigger picture for the true source of righteousness. And here it is in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the first time in Romans where faith is explicitly linked with Jesus Christ. The apostle can't help himself. He blurts out the answer. The righteousness of God is appropriated through faith. Now, faith isn't what saves you or makes you righteous. This is where grammar is important. The preposition shows us the connection. It is through, through the channel of faith. So you can think of faith as a stretched arm with an open hand. It is the instrument, the means by which we lay hold of Christ and are united with him. But there's a catch. In order to cling to Jesus, we must relinquish our grip on anything and everything else. And that is hard, right? Because we are a tight-fisted people. We clench onto our accolades, our popularity, our looks, our family, our portfolio, our occupation, our health, our relationships, ourselves. A garden variety of options. But true biblical faith will have no rival. 
Jesus will not play second fiddle. And if you're wondering for you what the object of your faith is, you need only ask yourself, where is home base? What are you proud of? What do you boast in? What is the basis of your worth, your identity, your existence? That's what you hold in the palm of your hand. And before a holy God, if it be not Christ, all these alternatives are grasping at straws. We can only match God's righteousness with his own righteousness. Through faith, we latch on to all Jesus and we present God's righteousness back to him. One of my favorite hymns expresses it well. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus Christ is the rock of ages. And our arms are extended, our hands open to grasp onto him the righteousness of God through faith. And should we be tempted to applaud ourselves for a job well done, for putting our faith in Jesus, Paul reveals next how the righteousness of God is by grace. Our second heading, the righteousness of God by grace. We'll resume at the end of verse 22 into 23. Paul continues, says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When it comes to our standing before God, Paul announces that there is no distinction. And I appreciate how the apostle gives it to us straight. He puts us all on level playing field. This is countercultural because so much of our lives is about distinguishing ourselves from others, right? From separating ourselves from the rest of the pack. We strive to finish in first place or at the top of the class as grounds for justifying our worth, for proving that we are better than our peers. The Jews, well, they had the law and circumcision. Americans, they can brag about their prosperity or their rich heritage. Good people point to their altruism or acts of kindness. But Paul shows us a prerequisite for the righteousness of God is confessing that we are actually not distinct. We're not as special as we think we are. We're all lumped into the same broad category. We're sinners. And Paul is not afraid to call it like it is in verse 23. The verb sinned here is in a tense that captures the panoramic view. It's, a, it's as general of a statement as you can make. He's saying, essentially, everyone, without exception, has sinned. On the other hand, the verb fall short is in the present tense, which pushes the camera up close and personal. Sin is not just this vague and amorphous concept. No, the present tense shows us the gory details. That we fall short today on a daily basis in real and tangible ways. General and specific, the apostle is providing a full-orbed perspective. There is no escaping it. We have sinned against God and we fall short of his glory. And when sin is put in its proper context, 
when it is framed in relationship to God, then we start to see what makes it so vile, so wicked, so deplorable. Violating his commands is only the tip of the iceberg. What's underneath is all that our sin says about him. You follow? Let me illustrate. If I tell my son, Everett, not to eat my candy, and he boldly ignores my instruction and straight up gobbles down all of my Skittles, am I mad because he ate my precious candy? Maybe a little. But ultimately, I'm not upset because I have no more Skittles. I'm a grown man. I can go to the store and buy another pack. I can afford to buy 10 if I really wanted to. It's not about the candy first and foremost. What displeases me is what his disobedience says about me, how he views me, that I'm not worthy of his respect and obedience, that I am small in his eyes. Praxis, the Bible tells us we were created in the image of God to be like him, to live for him, to revere and represent him well. And when we sin, we don't just break his commands or do bad things. That is certainly part of it. But the atrocity of our sin is we fall short of his glory. We make him small in our eyes and in the eyes of others. We declare he is not worthy of our respect, of our obedience. We devalue and we de-God God. Maybe your reaction is you just want to tell Paul to take a chill pill, to relax. If sin is such a habitual and universal problem, let's not make such a big fuss, Paul. Let's just move on. But that's exactly his point. We can't move on until we have a proper revulsion of our sin. A right understanding of sin is seminal for right understanding of salvation, of the righteousness of God. We need a robust comprehension of our wretchedness because the ugliness of our transgression heightens the beauty of his grace. And that's the link that Paul has been reinforcing. You notice the parallel of verse 23 with verse 22. All have sinned, so all can be saved. No distinction in guilt means no one's disqualified from his grace. This past year has brought us a magical thing called stimulus checks. And the government has issued free money to those who meet a certain requirement. And in order to be eligible, your adjusted gross income has to be under $75,000, I believe. Now, no one naturally gloats, right? No one, no one is like elbowing their, their friend saying, look at me, I make less than you. But this is the only way to qualify for the stimulus check. It's to accept the fact. Well, God offers us the gift of salvation, his own righteousness. But to qualify, you must admit how bankrupt you are. You must acknowledge the humbling fact of verse 23. 
There is no separating. It is a packaged deal. But take heart. Because all have sinned, all have the opportunity to turn and believe. Since there is no distinction, there is no exclusion. All are eligible for the righteousness of God. It is by grace. And while most of us have memorized verse 23, it paves the way for the next verse. The verse we should prize. Verse 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified. This word, anytime you hear it, you read it, you see it, it ought to teleport you immediately into the courtroom where the verdict, the divine verdict, is read. It is theologically heavy, referring to the moment where we place our faith and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. At that very moment, God instantaneously declares justified in the right when with eyes of faith, we look upon Jesus, God sees us in his son, clothed in perfect righteousness. And we are acquitted, exonerated of our sin. Now that doesn't mean that we are without sin. The penalty has been absolved, but sin is still present. We live in a fallen world. We still wage war against our flesh, but being justified is a legal rendering and we are pronounced not guilty while this doctrine can come off very heady it's actually aimed at our hearts notice how the apostle couches this justification we don't deserve this verdict we don't make a compelling case for our innocence we plead christ we beg for grace and mercy and you would think that would be enough to get his point across but to make it absolutely clear, to underline it, to sear it in our minds and to etch it upon our hearts, the apostle is redundant for the sake of emphasis, justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. Paul is clever here. He knows our human hearts. Familiarity breeds contempt. Just consider the practice of tipping after a meal. You know, it becomes so routine, so mechanical, so commonplace that it's no longer seen as extra, as a way to bless and thank the waiter for their service. No, now it's assumed and almost required. I've heard stories of people, not myself, but other people being chased down because they didn't tip enough. In fact, these days, the, the check even comes with that suggested amount written at the bottom to ensure you don't cheap out, right? It says 18% is x and 20 percent is so on and 50 percent is etc personally i'd rather tipping be standardized and just called for what it is you know service charge you can tell my chinese side is getting triggered but what has happened to tipping well it's very simple familiarity breeds content what's supposed to be a gift has devolved into an expectation as silly as an illustration that is, as Christians, we need to be wary of doing the same thing with grace. Because in our circles, 
We talk and toss around the word so much, so often, grace can be just a throwaway word, a conversation filler, just normal Christian lingo. But that betrays the wonder of grace because it is wonderful precisely because it's abnormal. We need to be on guard against treating grace so nonchalantly or our attitude towards it has warped into an entitlement instead of a blessing, something assumed rather than gifted, which ironically is a contradiction of the very definition of grace. So Paul is blunt. In no unmistakable terms, justification, being justified before God, the righteousness of God is gifted by grace. Humility is fitting for the recipient. Praise for the giver. That's a preview for next week. Some of the application you can consider. Our last heading for our passage is the righteousness of God in Christ. The righteousness of God in Christ. Verse 24 continues, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. By using that key word redemption, Paul transports us to another We're ushered from the courtroom into the marketplace. And while we know the marketplace as the typical setting for business and trade, what shocks us as 21st century readers is what was available for purchase back then? Human beings. You see, in ancient times, poverty-stricken people could sell themselves as slaves at the market. I don't think of this as the abusive, inhumane slavery that is a blemish upon our nation's history. This was more like an occupation where you took on the job of a live-in hired hand. In fact, after years of service and saving, these slaves could purchase back their freedom or someone else could. So let's say, for example, our friend, ministry associate Chris, found himself in a predicament. And for one reason or another, he sold himself off as a slave. Five years of service for X amount of dollars. But today was his lucky day because I'm there. And I'm, let's say I'm bawling and I come strolling by. And I can redeem Chris. And out of the generosity of my heart, I could pay his remaining balance and spring him free. In fact, if his entire household was enslaved and I was super rich, I could buy them all. You know, I could say, give me Chris, Corey, and Leighton. I'll redeem and free them all. It'll be a good time. But Paul here tells us this is what Jesus does for sinners, for those enslaved to their vices. And we are redeemed through Christ. He pays our penalty and he ransoms us. How exactly? Paul answers by bringing us to one final scene. We're moved from the courtroom to the marketplace and now we arrive in the temple. Look at verse 25. So through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, referring to Christ Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation sounds like a big word, an SAT word that we don't normally use in everyday conversation. It's not like we say, hey, man, I'm really encouraged because you're so propitious today. No, we don't say that. And I would gather many of us would have trouble defining 
that word. So to help, to be propitious means to be favorable towards someone. To be favorable towards someone. Propitiation then is some sort of appeasement or to carry forth from the last thing, some sort of payment that settles the score and therefore restores the relationship, making an individual favorable towards another. It's not perfect, but you can almost think of redemption as the cause and propitiation as the effect. And this was woven into the fabric of Jewish culture, their temple custom. And for their sin, people brought bulls and lambs. And the priests would take these animals, slaughter them, and then sprinkle their blood, burn their bodies, all to atone for the sins of the nation, all to abate the wrath of God. But this was incomplete because the book of Hebrews tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Animals are not sufficient substitutes for human beings. It's not a fair trade. Instead, this practice reminded them of their sin and of their need because they had to do it year in and year out. And Paul picks up and expands on this custom, this ritual. Do you see where he's going with this? What has he been hammering in the book of Romans? That God is not pleased. Our sin renders us at odds. His wrath hangs over humanity. But the beacon of hope pierces through in this passage. Because amazing grace, God's anger can be appeased. His favor then upon us. How? Well, God takes initiative. He brings an offering. He presents Jesus as a propitiation. And his wrath is quenched by the blood of Christ. The innocent lamb of God slaughtered. The righteous son put to death to reconcile the unrighteous. Full atonement is made by grace through faith where in Christ. The late R.C. Sproul rejoiced and said, the glory of the gospel is this. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. And to highlight the breadth of this glorious gospel, the apostle travels through time. He writes in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, these verses cover the full range, past, present, and future. In the Old Testament, God did not ignore the sins of Noah, Abraham, and David. Pass, passing over doesn't mean unpaid, just that the payment was delayed. That God wrote himself IOUs until the proper time, until Christ appeared, and the spotlight could be cast upon Jesus and his cross. That's why in these last two verses, you have so many verbs about going public, right? Verse 25, God put forward. This was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, to show his righteousness at the present time. God broadcasted and demonstrated his righteousness at this watershed event in Jesus Christ and him crucified. There at the cross, all the accounts are settled, past, present, and future. 
that in Christ sins you and I have committed yesterday, today, and tomorrow have been paid for. And in Christ, we see the glory of God. And God's justice is upheld because he does not turn a blind eye towards sin. His wrath is against sin is exhausted in Christ. And God can justify the sinner, declaring them righteous because of their faith in Christ. It's as if they had lived Jesus' perfect, spotless, righteous life. Our friend Luther called this passage the chief point of the whole Bible. The chief point of the whole Bible. That is high praise. And we might roll our eyes and shrug our shoulders, scoffing at it, kind of like it's exaggerated. But I hope by now we can see why the German monk would stake such a claim. In this passage, we have the heartbeat of the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith in a nutshell. It's why there was a reformation in the first place. That the battleground of the reformation was over the righteousness of God. And the reformers, they synthesized how they differed from the Catholic tradition into the five solas. Five teachings that are distinct from the Catholic church. And of the five solas, three are clearly featured in this passage. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith, uh, through faith alone. Sola Christus, in Christ alone. And you could argue the remaining two are hovering, lingering in the background. Sola scriptura, according to scripture alone. And sola deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Now, taken on their own, there's nothing particularly unique about these individual solas. Many groups can agree to a number of them. You know, the Catholic Church would affirm grace as essential in salvation, but also work. Other religions obviously have faith, but their faith does not rest solely in Christ. People have gleaned wisdom from the Bible, but they don't view the scriptures as divine authority. But what separates Christianity the doctrine of justification and the reformed understanding of the righteousness of God, well, it's found in what the five solas share. That in their respective realms, they are alone, alone. And then when combined and taken together, the five solas form the convictional backbone of Luther and the other reformers to promote and preach the biblical understanding of the righteousness of God. as by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we can only begin to catch a glimpse of how glorious and amazing you are, that you would orchestrate such a wonderful, wise plan of redemption, that instead of leaving us, forsaking us in our sin, you would send your son to die on our behalf. And this is grace. This is sheer grace to gather together, to celebrate Christ, to come and study your word. That through faith, we may cling to Christ and receive the manifold blessings that come through him. Lord, we pray that we would boast in nothing else but being in Christ, that being in Christ would be our identity and that would touch every aspect 
of our lives. It would color how we see our jobs. It would shape how we relate with one another. It would impact how we handle our resources. That all things would be would serve the purpose of exalting and promoting Jesus Christ. But it is in him we have the righteousness of God. We thank you for your word. We pray that you continue to refine us, that you would convict us and shape us, that we might honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.